Good morning. Hey, good to see people socializing and visiting this morning. That's great. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds. Help us put the pieces together that we can come into harmony with you and your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And I'm going to skip the announcement section today and kind of go into the lesson. Uh, just one uh, email I want to read uh, that we received this week. It's from California. It says, I'd like to report that I've used the DVDs you sent with great effect in the jail ministry and early teens. I don't think that's supposed to be the same. <laughs> Many of the inmates are quite vocal about how it helps them understand their current situation, and after viewing the DVD, one or more resistant teens in my class ended up having an hour and a half conversation uh, with, me, with, with me about some of the topics in the video. So That's the uh, God in your brain video set. All right, our lesson this week in the quarterly, uh, Christ and His Laws, entitled Christ's Kingdom and the Law. And the memory verse is out of Jeremiah 21, 33, and you know this is also quoted in Hebrews. And it says, But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Any thoughts about what that means? Well, maybe we should ask the question first, what is the heart? What does it mean, write it on the heart? What is the heart where the law is written? Mind, okay, so it's not this pump inside your chest. Believe it or not, there's occasionally times people think it's this pump inside your chest. No, it's actually the mind. It's, and the heart is kind of metaphor of your real individuality, what makes you uniquely you, the, the, the uh, reservoir which drives you to the actions that you do, your character even some might say. This is the heart. What law gets written there? Uh. The law of love. Yeah, the law of love. Um, do we have any role? Yes, Russell. I mean, it begs the question, would God write an imposed code in our minds? Or would he bring us into compliance with the way that life is, is designed to operate? Yeah, so an imposed code. If you think about this, and we, we are, are pretty technologically savvy these days, and, and we are building robots, and we have robots over here at the Volkswagen plant. They have all kinds of robots that do all kinds of stuff for the building of those cars. And those uh, engineers and operators that do this will go in and they will program those robots with code to do exactly those things right. In fact, you could even call it, there's a law for their performance and how they're going to perform. You're suggesting God doesn't write a law in us like we write code into a robot. Anybody disagree with that? No, not at all. So, do we have any role in having the law written on our heart? Is there any role for us to play in that process? Yeah. Acceptance, realization, cooperation. Does God write his law on the hearts and minds of individuals who oppose him, who resist him, who don't want it there? No, so there's a cooperative process. We can't write the law there in our own strength. We can't, you know, the Ethiopian can't change his skin, the leopard can't change his spots. We can't change the tenets and drives and the natural inclinations of our heart motives. But we can experience the change as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to give us new motives. Yes? How will that impact with their finding neurocells in other organs, specifically cardiac and others, and the psychological impact of transplants? and organ removals, that they're finding behavioral differences as well as memory differences from transplants and so forth. What's, what's the impact there? Yeah, I don't think the neural cells are finding the heart are actually electrical conducting cells that actually do that control the, the rhythmic beating of the heart. It, there, there's no evidence that there's any cognition or mood or things. But, but, let me finish. <laughs> when they do organ transplants, you're also transplanting tissues and there's amounts of blood that gets transplanted, and uh, sometimes uh, um, progenitor cells are transplanted. And we know, for instance, individuals who've received bone marrow transplants, okay, a woman can get a bone marrow transplant from a man, a man can get a bone marrow transplant from a woman. The norm- and and we, I'm doing it this way because it's easy to identify the cell origins if it's XX chromosome or XY chromosome. They're easy to under- or, uh, identify without going into the sub-DNA uh, structure. And uh, they found uh, a man who's received um, bone marrow transplants from a woman will later in their life at autopsy, when they do uh, an autopsy of the brain, have neurons in their brain with XX chromosomes. Mm-hmm. 
And women who have auto, uh, bone marrow transplants for men will have neurons in their brain with XY chromosome. So basically, the progenitor cells, once they're in your body, if your body accepts and doesn't kill them, can begin producing cells with the, cell, with the, with the genetic origins of the donor rather than yours. That potentially then could have influences along the lines that you're suggesting. It's still obviously a lot to be worked out. There's still so much subtlety we don't know about. For instance, I was reading a research article yesterday where the foods that you eat, and this was done on rice in, in, uh, in Japan, but the foods that you eat, you actually absorb genetic material from the food. That genetic material will actually enter your genome and affect the expression of your DNA. And so they've identified micro, micro um, sections of uh, messenger RNA from the plants, the rice, that actually alter how the uh, messenger RNA in our body is being expressed, which means it's affecting protein production and cellular function based on the foods that you eat. So it's much more complex than we've ever known. So I don't think we know the whole story yet, but it's an interesting thing you brought up. In the uh, last paragraph, it says, um, Indeed, we have been promised that the world and all that's in it will be destroyed, and God will establish a new and eternal world where sin and death, all the result of the violation of God's law, will never exist. How do you understand? Now, this is not false. This is a true statement. Absolutely true. But it's open to interpretation. How do you understand the meaning that um, the world and all that's in it will be destroyed? That God will use his power to destroy and God is now the destroyer? Or that sin itself deviates from God's design for life and results in destruction? And in fact, this earth currently, for the last thousands of years since Adam sinned, God has been restraining and holding back the four winds of strife, the principalities and powers of darkness, putting a hedge of protection, holding at bay the natural destruction that would come in a probationary period, giving human beings time to be reconciled so they won't be destroyed. What do you see as a destroyer, God or sin? Do you understand most of Christianity is more afraid of God, who's trying to save them, than sin, which is destroying them? Yes, it's it's, it's, it's backwards. So I want to say to you, yes, it's true. It will be destroyed, but God is not the destroyer. He's the restorer. Here's a quote from Oswald Chambers that Dean sent me recently. It's in his book, Conform to His Image, page 363. When we speak of the wrath of God, we must not picture him as an angry sultan on a throne of heaven, bringing a lash about people when they do what he does not want. There is no element of personal vindictiveness in God. It is rather that God's constitution of things is such that when a man becomes severed from God, his life tumbles into turmoil and confusion, into agony and distress. It is hell at once, and he will never get out of it unless he turns to God. Immediately he turns, uh, immediately he turns God, that is, chaos Immediately that he turns, chaos is is turned into cosmos, wrath into love, distress into peace. What do you think? Amen. This is exactly, Oswald Chambers got it. And you notice how he said that God's constitution of things, how God has constructed things to operate is the way life is to operate. If you deviate from that, it results in pain and destruction. Yes, you had a question? No. Okay. And um, just a clarification, you said God turns, it's actually the person that turns. And immediately when the person turns right. away from sin. Right, turns back to God, then God does this for him. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Uh, I think it's use of constitution. Because at, the, at the foundation of, of America's imposed law is the constitution. Yes. And at the foundation of God's law is his constitution. The, the constitution of how he built things versus the, the constitution as in a, a scripted, yeah, I like that. Someone emailed me uh, along these same lines about this destruction, asking me about the seven last plagues. What about those? What about the seven last plagues? Well, let's see if we can't reason it out together. According to Scripture, the best that we can tell, what will be happening on earth when the seven last plagues are poured out? What's what's the state of earth and and human beings on earth at that time? Do we have more and more people, the preponderance and the majority of people, coming closer and closer to godliness? Or do we have the preponderance of people becoming further and further and hardened against God? Okay, so, so recognize when the plague's coming, most of the people on earth are hardening their hearts against God. Where's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth? In our hearts and minds. 
So if the hearts and minds of most humans are closing to the Holy Spirit, what's happening to the Holy Spirit on earth? He's slowly being withdrawn from the earth. Not because God doesn't want to be here, but because we're rejecting him and closing him away from the earth. As the Holy Spirit's withdrawn, who gets more control over the earth? Satan. Satan. So the restraining, the four winds are being loosened. Okay, why? Because we're rejecting the one who restrains the, the, the destroyer. And so he's getting more power on earth. And um, what would that then mean for nature? What will happen to the world when Satan is given freedom to rule on earth, when God takes him off his leash, so to speak, and sets him free to govern this earth the way Satan likes? Chaos and destruction. Chaos and destruction, absolutely. From here, first gets to see what Satan's really like. Yes. So here is here's a quote from one of the founders of our church. This is what our church used to teach. I don't know if, if, if people still hold to this or not. I, I see it this way. This is out of Manuscript Releases, Volume 14, page 3. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way, they placed themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, notice, independent of God's Spirit, they've closed their hearts to the Spirit of God. After repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down in great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. And yet, the majority of the world will call it an act of God. This is God doing this. God is punishing us for our sin and wickedness. This is what they'll say. It's the same principle that Oswald Chambers described, just written in a different way. There are others who throw out Christianity who have understood it this way as well. But it goes back, if you understand, notice, to how you understand God's law. Do you understand God's law as the design protocols upon which the Creator has constructed His universe to operate? The builder, of the, the one who has created the fabric of the cosmos... Or do you understand it like a Roman dictator, a set of rules that he now enforces? And if you see it this way, then God becomes the cosmic executioner. This is another quote from one of the founders. It's out of uh, Christ's Triumphant, page 247. Jesus Christ is the restorer. Satan, the apostate, is the destroyer. Here is the conflict between the prince of life and the prince of this world, the power of darkness. The world's redeemer did not design... Notice design. What's design mean? He didn't create. He didn't build it this way. Did not design that his purchased inheritance should live and die in their sins. What then is the matter? Why are so few reached and saved? It is because so many of those who profess to be Christians are working in the same lines as the great apostate. They let Satan devise and plan for them. How would that be? How is it they're, they're working in the same? By accepting this imperial dictator imposed law construct and teaching that God operates with a system of rules and that God is going to have to use his power to punish, they let Satan devise and plan for them. He makes them apostates, disloyal to God, rebels against his precepts and laws. Yes? Um, you know, even during the destruction, God's balance still continues because it's a third of the earth that's going to be destroyed, a third of the waters turned to blood. It's, it's because Satan took a third of the angels. It's balanced still. Way in the back. Comment in the back. Um, <coughs> question, comment. Did not God destroy the earth with the flood or did sin or did sin and Satan? Genesis 6-7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Yeah, and that's an interesting question. First, we have to ask the first question, is that the first death or the second death? Is there a resurrection from that death? Yes. Yes. So it's not the ultimate end of wickedness and sin. It's not the destruction of wickedness in the end. There are two ways that I'm okay with understanding that, that text. 
The flood is, we're not given a lot of insight into God's role. We do know in the Old Testament that it is described as God taking responsibility for things that he permitted. If you read in the Old Testament, you'll find where it says that God slew or killed Saul for his disobedience. In another passage, you'll find where Saul fell on his own sword and committed suicide. You'll find in a passage where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You'll find in another passage, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And in another passage, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so in the Old Testament scripture, God is given credit for doing that which he permits. Now, I actually am okay, personally, that if God brought the flood, because I see that at the time, God was working to keep open the avenue for which the Messiah would come. Once man sinned, without Jesus Christ coming to earth, the human race would be lost. Satan had a strategy to stop that from happening, and that strategy is to get every human being to permanently close their heart to God. Then there's no avenue through which God could work. God is not going to have the Messiah born to Jezebel or a woman who hates God. And the Bible says at the time of the flood, there was only one righteous man left on the entire earth. Consider that. Only one on the entire earth was righteous. The avenue through which God can work is almost shut. One interpretation and understanding is God then in mercy in a therapeutic action uh, uh, acted to put his unruly children to sleep, to rest, suspended them in time. They will come out of the grave with the same current of thoughts they went into the grave and they will finish their life at the dictates of their own choices. And he kept open the avenue for the Messiah. That's one view. There's another view that I'm actually comfortable with and I'm okay with. I actually prefer this one. But the other one is that exactly what I'm describing here happened at the time of the flood, that the whole world had hardened their heart except for one man and perhaps his family. And therefore, the Holy Spirit was mostly withdrawn from the earth. Uh, The Holy Spirit and God are what control the forces of nature. Satan got a hold of the forces of nature and things started to run off the rails and things were falling apart and the flood and chaos came. And once the wicked were dead, then the majority of people on earth now were open to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is back in control of what's happening on earth and stabilizes nature. I'm okay with that interpretation too. Either one. All right, let's keep going. We've got to keep going. (laughs) We can spend all day on that. And there's really some important stuff in the lesson we need to get to. So what does this really mean though? Sin is deviation from God's design. It thus sin injures, sin damages, taxes, burdens, exhaust, wears down, and ultimately destroys. And Satan tricks Christians into accepting the human views of God's law and his rules and thus in, engage in religious and other relig- rituals and legal processes for legal pardon and solution rather than actual transformation of the being. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph states, when God created the first human beings, he gave them dominion over all things. Adam was to rule the world. However, through violating God's law, he forfeited the right to earthly sovereignty and ownership went to the archenemy, Satan. When the representatives of the other worlds gathered before God during the time of the patriarchs, it was Satan who appeared as the delegate from earth. All righty. Any concerns about this paragraph? Hopefully you had major red flags warning, warning going off on this paragraph. Yes. I think Satan interrupted that meeting uninvited. Okay, we're going to get some evidence of that. She thinks Satan interrupted the meeting uninvited. Um, any other thoughts? He claimed a dominion over the earth. Ownership is what they said. Ownership. He claimed it. He didn't, he didn't create it. He didn't provide any, uh, any of the matter. He, didn't, he had no, no uh, rights to that. No input whatsoever in the formation of the earth. So, so let's, 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 let's deconstruct this paragraph. First, there's just a minor little typographical and, it's, and I don't think anyone would, would misunderstand this, but I just want to point out the little typographical just so we have clarity. And that is God did not give Adam dominion over all things. He gave dominion over all things on earth. Okay, that's just a little typographical, but I just want to be clear on that. The bigger concern, though, is this false conclusion that ownership went to Satan. Now, this idea, this idea that Satan got ownership has led to all kinds of bad theology throughout history of Christianity about God, about the plan of salvation. Um, this fuels certain legal constructs of the atonement that, that Satan, after his fall, uh, uh, after Adam's fall, had some legal claim to the title of earth, and Christ had to come to do some uh, legal accounting to, to dispossess him as the legitimate owner and ruler of earth and become the legitimate owner. I mean, this is all ridiculous. It's not true. The earth was never Adam's property to own. Adam was a steward, a viceroy, a governor, but Christ was the owner. Satan claimed ownership, but Satan is the father of lies. It was a lie. 
And it's so interesting that his lie of ownership, it gets accepted as true. How many of Satan's lies are accepted as truth? It's incredible. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Therefore, God, in order to be just, must punish sin. That's accepted as truth. Satan owns the earth. That's accepted as truth. No, he doesn't. That's when he presented himself in heaven in the book of Job, claiming to be the representative of earth. God's response was, <laughs> not so fast. Consider Job. Job recognizes you are not the representative of earth. You have no place in this forum. And then the argument was, of course, well, that he, he only pretends to recognize. He really recognizes me. He's just pretending because you pay better than I do. Let's see if we can't reason this out together. Understanding God's law is the design parameter upon which life in the universe operates. Could Adam, prior to his fall, create from nothing? Could Satan? Could Adam keep the sun, moon, and stars in the sky and on their orbits? Could Satan? Could Adam control the balance of all the forces of nature constantly, moment to moment? Could Satan? No. Then all Adam's rule, what he was given to rule, was constantly subordinate and under the oversight, care, constancy, sustenance of God who was still in control of it all. You follow what I'm saying here? And what Satan rested was that ability under the rulership, ownership of God. And what would happen to nature if God actually stopped his sustaining power? It would collapse, yes. The disintegration of life. So here's a quote from one of the founders of our church. You'll find this in Desire of Ages, page 129. When Satan declared to Christ, by the way, Without this quote, how many of you, just from our own reasoning out and understanding God's design and laws, <clears throat> are comfortable that Satan was not legal owner of earth? Okay? But uh, some people, you know, need, need some additional confirmation. And so this is Desire of Ages, page 129. When Satan declared to Christ, the kingdom and the glory of the, of the world are delivered unto me, and to whomever I will give it, he stated what is true only in part and declared it to serve his own purposes of deception. So this is he's going to try to deceive with it. Satan's dominion was that wrested from Adam, but Adam was the vicegerent of Christ, of the creator. He was not an independent rule. The earth is God's, and he has committed all things to his son. Adam was to reign subject to Christ. When Adam betrayed his sovereignty into Satan's hands, Christ still remained the rightful king. Thus the Lord said to Nebuchadnezzar, quoting from Scripture, the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. Daniel 4.17 Satan can exercise his usurped authority only as God permits. When the tempter offered to Christ the kingdom and glory of the world, he was proposing that Christ should yield up the real kingship of the world and hold dominion subject to Satan. This was the same dominion upon which the hopes of the Jews were set. They desired a kingdom of the world. Sadly, the lesson, see, when you accept this false view of God's law as Roman, as imperial, as Satan's view, then you, then you inadvertently end up presenting Satan's dream and Satan's wish that he owns the earth and Christ is subordinate to him. And that's what they present. Satan's the owner. No, he's not. Amen. He is not. He never was. Yes. Is this similar to someone trying to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge? <laughs> yeah, there you go. So therefore, when Ellen White wrote, when Christ bowed his head and died, he bore the pillars of Satan's kingdom with him to the ground. She was not talking about the kingdom of this earth as you're describing it. He's talking about the kingdom of evil and wickedness. Yeah, let's go to the next question then, because that's a great point. It segues perfectly. So... First off, the idea that Christ had to achieve some legal victory is fiction. It's falsehood. Reality is that uh, God has always been and always will be the owner of earth. But Satan has, uh, Satan's lies have impacted the minds of intelligent beings. And it's the minds of intelligent beings that God wants to free and rest from his control. Not the dirt under our feet. Okay? So then, why does the scripture then, following up your point, why does the scripture then include, including Christ, refer to Satan as either the prince of this world or ruler of this world? If what I, if I said in that quote from Ellen White is true, why is it referred to this way? Because the primary operating principle 
of earth and the world today is Satan's principle of selfishness, survival of the fittest. Thus, Satan is credited with being the leader or owner of lies, selfishness, coercion, disease, pain, suffering, exploitation, abuse, domination, and death. This is his kingdom. This is Satan's kingdom, and this is what God wants you to realize when you say the kingdoms of the world. Look at how the kingdoms of the world function with all of these horrible things. But Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. Christ's kingdom is the kingdom of truth, love, freedom, healing, relief, restoration, self-sacrifice, protection, deliverance, and ultimately life. Notice the contrast. And it is a stark contrast. I'm going to go through the contrast. God's kingdom is the kingdom of truth. Satan's kingdom is the kingdom of lies. God's kingdom is the kingdom of love. Satan's kingdom is the kingdom of selfishness. God's kingdom is the kingdom of freedom. Satan's kingdom is the kingdom of coercion. Coercion. Look at the, how, the, how the governments of the earth work with coercive pressure. God's kingdom is the kingdom of healing. Satan's kingdom is the kingdom of sickness or disease. God's kingdom is the kingdom of relief. Satan's kingdom is the kingdom of pain. God's kingdom restores or restoration. Satan's kingdom causes suffering. God's kingdom is self-sacrificial. Satan's kingdom is exploitive of others. God's kingdom protects. Satan's kingdom abuses. God's kingdom delivers. Satan's dominates and controls. God's kingdom is the kingdom of life. Satan's kingdom is the kingdom of death. Notice, Satan has a kingdom. But recognize what it is. And how much of Satan's kingdom have we put over on God? We must stop attributing to God the very attributes of Satan. Second paragraph said, What happened during the wilderness temptation is very revealing. Satan offered to, Jesus, to give Jesus rulership over all the earthly kingdoms if Jesus would fall down and worship him. Jesus came to take the world back from Satan, but he could do it only at the cost of his life. How strong then the temptation must have been when Satan stood there and offered to give the world to him. However, in bowing to Satan, he would have fallen into the same trap as that of Adam and consequently would have been guilty of violating his father's law. Had he done so, the plan of salvation would have been aborted and we'd be dead in our sins. Now, after what we've talked about, why don't you deconstruct that paragraph? <laughs> Think it through. Well, Satan didn't have the world to give to Jesus. Satan didn't have the world to give. That's right. So, if if did you think Christ had understanding of reality? (laughs) (laughs) Certainly. And, And his mission and goal was to deliver the world, to restore to unity. Your reference says he's taking back the world from Satan, but previously we're saying. It wasn't Satan. So why does the reference say he's taking back something when Satan never actually had it? Taking it back from not ownership. Okay, we, we, we clarify that just as it's taking it back yes. from Satan. Yes. So the presumption is management, ownership, stewardship. That's one presumption. What's the other presumption? What's the other reality? What would you take back? The minds and hearts of men from selfishness to love, from deceit to truth, from death to life from wickedness to righteousness. That's what he's taking back. Yes? I'm not sure that this was such a powerful temptation for Christ. I think that turning the bread to stone was a more powerful temptation. Yeah, I, I agree with you, because I was about to say, he understood reality. Could Christ achieve his goal? He had a goal set before him. Could he achieve his goal by bowing down to Satan? Do you think he understood that? One of the primary uh, temptations that Satan throws at uh, a lot of people, probably most, is that self-aggrandizement and and uh, putting one up in a, in a puffy way, and uh, in God's unselfish love. Doesn't have- so it says it says in the um, lesson that Christ couldn't uh, uh, take back without his death. He couldn't achieve his victory and, and reclaim earth without his sacrificial death. I agree with that. That's true. Why not? Because his death told us the truth. Ah, number one, death 
of Christ revealed the truth on so many levels. Satan was exposed as a liar, a fraud, a murderer at the cross. All sympathy was lost for him and the intelligences throughout the universe other than on planet Earth. Some still sympathize with him. Um, uh, the truth about God's character was revealed. Truth about the, what sin does to sinners is revealed. The whole thing, I mean, it was clarified at the cross because what Christ came to take back, he came to reclaim the love, devotion, loyalty, and trust of his intelligent beings. That's what he came to do. And can you get love, devotion, and loyalty by the exercise of coercive power and pressure? You can't do it. That's why, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. This is why he came. Thus, Christ's death, according to Scripture, achieved, destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14, destroyed death, 2 Timothy 1, nine and 10, and destroyed the devil's work. 1 John 3, 8, and the devil's work was to efface the image of God in man and place Satan's image where man should be, making man like Satan in character. Christ destroyed all three of those. He restored man to what God originally intended to be. All right, Monday's lesson talks about how human government sometimes um, one can hold uh, dual citizenship. Then it states... um, There's no such thing as dual citizenship, however, in the great controversy. We are on one side or the other. The kingdom of evil has been battling the kingdom of righteousness for millennia, and it is impossible for a person to be faithful to both at the same time. We all have to make a choice about whose kingdom will have our allegiance. So question, what does the the kingdom of God, the true kingdom of God, look like? Self-sacrificial love. Yep. New command I give you, love one another. They shall know you are my disciples by your love. Greater love is no man that he lay his life down for his friends. That's uh, John 13, 34 and 35 and John 15, 13. You may know the story of, I can't remember say his first name, but Chikomboka Chama? April 14, 2012, 16-year-old College Academy student was at Harrison Bay State Park swimming with friends when several tried to swim across the lake. One boy got tired and began calling for help, and Chama swam out to help him and was able, according to witnesses, to shove him or push him or drag him into the shallows where the boy was saved, but Chama went down and drowned. Well, actually died. Let me say that again. Because I was told by one person that uh, he had no water in his lungs and that evidently he had a known heart problem and he exhausted himself in his heart stopped and he died giving his life for another is this what the kingdom of god looks like giving his life for another notice the stark contrast in that and what happened in rwanda in 1994 where over one million people were killed in four months predominantly and almost exclusively by christians and with many christian leaders and church and churches involved in fact the churches were used as the main killing fields as pastors, priests, and nuns would lead people to their churches for sanctuary and then call the militia in to have them killed in their churches. The International War Crime Tribunal of Rwanda convicted, forgive me for blundering the name, you see the spelling, you would struggle too, um, <laughs> Elisafan Tekarotomana, a Seventh-day Adventist pastor for encouraging Tutsis to assemble in his church in the Kabuyi Prefecture, then leading a convoy of soldiers and civilian militia to his church where they slaughtered 8,000 refugees. In 1998, Rwandan court condemned two Catholic priests, Jean Francios Karianga and Edouard Nekoriki, uh, for luring people to their parish where soldiers and militia massacred them. This is a quote. Timothy Longman's book, Christianity and Genocide in Rwanda, page 6 and 7, says, Believing that their actions were consistent with the teachings of their churches, the death squads in some communities held mass before going out and kill. People came to mass each day to pray, then went out to kill. In some cases, militia members apparently paused in the frenzy of killing to kneel down and pray at the altar. In Longman's book, he documents that those who identified with an authoritarian God took part in the genocide and killed, while other Christians who identified with a God of love helped to protect the refugees. Catholic or Protestant did not matter church members killed their own pastors and priests, and priests killed their own parishioners. By beholding 
we are changed. If you want evidence that the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church will not stop Adventists from participating in the beast system of Revelation and uniting with state militias to abuse and to kill, Rwanda is that evidence. 11% of the population, 11% of the population of Rwanda are Seventh-day Adventists. Do you understand? 11% of the population. Do you understand how huge that is? Yet our church has buried its head in the ground and continues its evangelism along the lines of its unique doctrinal differences rather than taking up and promoting the message which is to be our mission, the final message of mercy, according to Ellen White, Christ's Object Lessons 411, to lighten the world for his return is the truth about God's character of love. And those who are worshiping that character in Rwanda sacrificed and protected themselves to protect others. Those that held to the doctrines of the church but had the authoritarian God went out and killed their own members. I don't think anything speaks more clearly to the problems that we're facing and why Christ hasn't come. Rwanda also revealed, regardless of denomination, those who worship the God of love protected, regardless of denomination, regardless of which day they worshiped on. This is going to happen on a worldwide basis when the four winds let go. Anybody want to comment on that? It's profound. I encourage you just to let yourself think about the significance of this. Third paragraph. Yes. Even if you believe in the doctrine strictly as rules to follow, why would you go and murder someone else? That doesn't justify what they did. She says, even if you uh, believe in the doctrines just as they are, it doesn't justify. Well, it's certainly when you believe in a God that must kill in order to punish wickedness, then you will take up the sword to punish wickedness. It's a holy and righteous thing to do when you've identified that person as being deviant from God's design and deserving of punishment. This is exactly what they were doing. These people need to be punished. You understand they completely derailed themselves. What does the scripture actually say? When you come into Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, male or female. We're one in Christ. When you come into Christ, there's no Adventist or Protestant, Catholic or, or, or otherwise, or Jew. We're all one in Christ. They did not surrender their identifications with their tribal, their tribes and unite with Christ. How many Adventists and other Christians are caught up in the same thing, either identifying with the United States and against the Muslims in the Muslim world and Christians will go? I mean, Christians have done this before. Look in the Dark Ages. Look at Nazi Germany. Look, look in Bosnia where the Christians went to kill all the Muslims? Okay, how can they possibly do this? Because they worship an authoritarian God. That's why. This is Satan's version of God. And it's nothing has been more clearly revealed in history that if you hold the wrong concept of God, even with the right doctrines, you become like Satan. Even Christians against Christians, the IRA. Yeah, the IRA, Christians against Christians, Catholics and Protestants. In another case, their mind becomes so darkened they actually can tell themselves that God is on our side which is kind of what the U.S. government is all about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yes. I, I'd like to observe that if you hold to a belief in a God who is transforming your heart and mind, then you can't take another life thinking you're doing his will or otherwise. Whereas if you believe in a God who simply checks off the box, yep, you said you're sorry for that, and there is no transformation of the heart then you can kind of go along and do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, uh, these groups were killing in Christ's name, were perhaps viewing the ones they were killing as a threat to their family and friends. We, we, ha- we wouldn't kill normally, but these are wicked and evil people, and we must kill them to stop the wickedness in our society. And if we don't, they'll kill our children. They'll kill our family. They'll molest our babies. So we've got to go kill them so they won't kill our families. This is cleansing of righteousness to remove evil. This is, a, this is excising a cancer from our midst. You can't see how Christians could do this? In the uh, third paragraph, it says, Once people make a decision to follow Christ, they have chosen to turn their back on the devil's kingdom. He or she is now part of another commonwealth, that of Jesus Christ. And as a result, the person now obeys his rules, his laws, his commandments, not those of the devil. Hmm. 
Notice the lesson, being part of the commonwealth of Jesus means we obey his rules, his laws, and his commandments. The way it's stated, I don't, it's, not, it's not false understood properly, but the way it's stated, it lends itself towards what? Towards division, towards what happened in Rwanda. This is an authoritarian God. He's got his rules, he's got his commandments, and you need to obey. If you're on his side, you've got to obey his laws. You've got to follow his rules. And we know that his rule is that Seventh-day Sabbath is a Sabbath. And if they're not following that rule, then they're lawbreakers. They're outside, they're outside the Lord. They can't be right. They're going to get the mark. They're the mark of the beast. What do we do with those people? This, this is... Uh... To me, it speaks to the arrogance of power. And uh, it, some people draw their power from being right. So what we're supposed to do is present the truth in love, leave people free. The Bible verse that I quoted from Jesus, they will know you're my disciples by love. your love for each other. Right. He did not say, notice Jesus did not say anywhere, find it for me, they will know you are my followers by the Sabbath you worship on, by the food that you eat, by the clothes that you dress, by the jewelry you don't wear, by the TV you don't watch. Notice all the stuff that we focus on that divides us is never part of what defines us as one of his people. We either worship a God of love and we come to love people. Or we worship a dictator who has a bunch of rules and then we look at all the rules and we figure out which rules are the right rules and which are the wrong rules and they're doing the wrong rules and we've got the right rules and then we begin fighting against each other. We wonder why the Lord hasn't returned. We wonder why the non-Christian world mocks Christianity. Seriously. How, if you were a not-Christian and you looked at the state of Christianity in the world, what I've just gone through, how could you even consider it? Because we, haven't, we have a form of godliness, Paul said at the end of time, but we deny the power. And what power do we deny? The power of of God's character of love. This is transformational, regenerational. This is what heals. We deny it. Second, uh, Tuesday's uh, lesson, first paragraph. It says, The dominant theme of Scripture is simple. God is love. God's love is the most potently demonstrated in his grace. With his unlimited power, he could easily have wiped humanity from the face of the earth, but instead he chose to exercise patience and give all a chance to experience the fullness of life in his eternal kingdom. Even more so, his love is, to re- is revealed in the price that he himself paid at the cross. Thoughts about this? Russell. He couldn't easily have wiped humanity from the face of the earth because he loves us. I mean, because he's our father. You know, the, the relationship that is that is between us and him goes far beyond our greatest love for any person that we have on this earth, whether it's a wife or a child or such. You know, he, he couldn't just do this. So it wasn't, that's not an option. It's for God. Power to do, yes. Heart to do, no. Yes, yes. Did y'all hear that clarifying? She said, easy with the actual ability of the power to achieve it, but not easy in his heart to exercise that power to do it. Is that, is that, yeah. Well, I think that's exactly right. The paragraph is dead on. So how might the paragraph be misunderstood? Is, is the paragraph lended? Is it clear? Is, is it kind of... You have, it depends on which law you begin from. You can you can reach two different ends. You have completely uh, uh, opposition to one another. Laura, you, you have. It a might comment. even be kind of defining love in an inaccurate way, as if love is just ignoring a breach of a contract for a while or something like that. Well, since you brought that up, and uh, we will go to the next paragraph, which is God's love is also directly related to His justice. Having provided countless opportunities for people to choose their own destiny, the God of love will not force them into the kingdom that they have re- rejected. When the wicked stand before God, God's throne in the judgment, they are condemned by their own testimony. No one who stands before the throne can truthfully say that he was unaware of God's requirements. Whether through written or natural revelation, all have been exposed to the basic principles of the law of God. How is God's love related to his justice? 
Somebody explain that for me. This is a classic one you'll get. When you present a God of love to the people who hold this imperial dictator view of God, what you will ultimately be thrown back on your face is, yes, he's not only loving, he's also just. just. This is what they hit you with. So you need to be able to process that and understand it rightly. So how do you connect the two? What do you say to somebody who says he's not only loving, he's also just? What do you mean by just? It's justice. Okay, what else? He allows us to choose. He allows us to choose. What else? Isn't his justice the act of letting us go, which breaks his heart? He grieves over it, but... You know, like a chicken would draw her chicks. How could I, how could I let you? I agree with you completely. I'm going to play the other side for a minute, though, okay? I agree with everything you said, but I, I, I'm going to play the side that I've heard thrown at me over and over again as I've. So you believe in a marshmallow God. <laughs> you believe in a God who doesn't play fair. It's not fair for that college co-ed who just n- never accepted Jesus as their savior to just be let go and suffer the same fate as Adolf Hitler who killed millions. Doesn't justice require that Adolf Hitler suffer more than that girl and God needs to punish him many, many days to make him suffer before he kills him? That's what justice looks like. This is what they'll say. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? And, and what I just said, by the way, is completely false, but this is what they say. This is how their mind thinks. Are you ready for it? So back to the, uh, we'll come back and answer the question. I want you to process this. Uh, if you see reality correctly, it's, it's really not hard to, to answer those questions. Yes. God's love, which is his nature, gu- guides his behavior, which is right doing. So I think it's his justice and his love are connected, and justice is doing right. Okay. Notice, let, let me go back to the first comment. Who is the source of destruction? So if they're going to, to be destroyed in the end, who does that come from? That comes from Satan. That- and, and, and I'm going to tell you, that's our view of it. Those who hold the imperial view actually will teach, will say, and do believe that destruction comes from God. This is the fundamental difference, that God is the... Yeah, he's sovereign, and he would be unjust if he didn't use his power to make it happen. This is how they would say it. Now, let, let me go back to that original question, because there was a subtle lie in the question, yet nobody seemed to spot. Subtle distortion. God is not only loving, he's also just. When they say that, they've, they've just diminished God. See, can you... Does the Bible say God is loving... Ah, is there a difference between being loving and being love? All of us in this room, through God's grace, can be loving. But are any of us love? God is love, not God is loving. This is a huge, huge difference. And so when they say, oh, yes, God's not only loving, he's also just, they've just diminished God infinitely. They have completely redefined reality and you're operating in their ballpark and this is why you have trouble. You have to redefine the ballpark and say, hold on, time out. God is love. And what does that mean? And then you define the law of love and he's constructed his universe to operate on those parameters. He is love. All, all universe is created to operate in harmony with his nature, the principle of giving. That's what love is. And their justice then is an expression or is based upon the law of the universe. The law of the universe is his character of love. And so justice will always be an expression of love. It's doing what's right, as was said over here. Yeah. Somebody, somebody else had a hand up somewhere? His loving then diminishes it as if it's only one of many facets. Yes. Every, see, the Bible says that God is forgiving, for, uh, forgiving. Um, but not forgiveness. He is omnipotent, or he's all-powerful, but he's not, you know, it doesn't describe him as being power. You follow what I'm saying? All the other attributes that they give him are actually expressions of love. He's all-knowing, but he's not defined as knowledge. God is knowledge. It doesn't say God is knowledge, or God is power, or God is forgiveness. For God is kindness, even though he's kind. All those other attributes are expressions of love. God is love, is what God is. Yes. Well, this, this implies two sides of God when he only has one. Yes, okay. And this is what they do. They want to make him a schizophrenic God. They want to split him in half where he has an attribute where he's kind, compassionate, loving. But he also has this just side where he must use his power to punish and torture and so forth. And that's exactly right. You defeat that by coming back and redefining reality. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The Bible doesn't say he's loving. He's love. 
And that is a, a state of being, and the whole universe actually is created to operate in harmony with that, and then you can move forward from that. <clears throat> God's constant justice be allowing our choices to have our own consequences? Yes, okay, so that's the just thing, yes, right? The right thing. What is the just and the right thing? What does love do to the object of its love if that object doesn't want to be with you? What? It enforces that freedom of choice that so, allows you yes. to choose. In, in any relationship that you know, if you genuinely love somebody, whether it's a husband-wife, whether it's a parent-child, if the child or the spouse or whoever rebels and insists on all your entreaties, all your efforts, every kind, gracious thing you do, even having envoys come represent you, insists on leaving and separating from you, what does love compel you to do? And if you're the source of life for that person and you let them go, then what happens? This is what happens in the end of the wicked. He can't ransom their choice, and they sever themselves from the source of life. Yes? We may be splitting hairs here, but I think what we just discussed is a definition of wrath uh, as opposed to God's justice. God's justice is healing. God's justice is restoration. God's justice is transforming our hearts and minds and characters so that like his. Yeah, I, I would say, I'd say it's both, though. Isn't it, isn't it right or just on God's part? If we're looking at God's actions, that he is right or just in the end to grant people the freedom of their own choices. No question. Uh, it's so also, that aspect also defined of, as wrath. Yeah. Yes. No, I agree with you. Yeah. What happens to love when one tries, tries to force it? Have any of you had an experience, maybe in high school or dating or something, with a person who tried to force their love on you? Or force you to love it. Come on, anybody, anybody, minutes are going to see or seen it. Come on. <laughs> what happens when you try to force love? Is there ever, is there ever a time where this is not true? Is there ever a time when love can be forced? Get your mind around that then. This is another one of those demarcating, test, boundary testing principles that you can test your theological constructs on. Whatever the theology is, if it has God in the role of forcing and coercing people with the outcome being he wants love, there's something wrong with that interpretation because it can never happen. Many do this very thing, you know. They say, God, God says, I love you. All I want is your love. But if you don't love me, I'll be forced by holiness and justice. And I can make you suffer more than anybody on earth. So you better love me. <laughs> it's a lie. Do we say that love can be forceful? Love can be forceful. Depending on how you interpret the word, sure. Love can force you to do a lot of things. Paul says the love of God compels me. It's a powerful force, if you will. So sure, love can be forceful and compelling, but generally to the one who's being overwhelmed with love. Couldn't God's love encourage hope to be hopeful? Yes. What if it's just a temporary measure, though? Because we talk about um, a parent and child relationship is different than two adults interacting. So do we believe that God took on a more forceful role with humanity ever? Yeah, God disciplines those he loves. Is discipline the same thing as coercive pressure? Is discipline the same thing as punitive or punishment? Punitive meaning to exact vengeance upon, to make them pay their pound of flesh or you'll be satisfied. That's punitive. Is that the same thing as discipline? Yes, discipline. Pardon? Darkened the mind. Yes, but discipline comes from the root word disciple. It means to teach. So God will use his power in disciplinary ways in order to heal, to restore, to educate, to protect. He will also use it as a doctor uses power. And as a, a doctor, sometimes I've had to restrain people against their will, put them in actual four-point leather restraints in a padded room, why would I do that to somebody? Because I, I want to punish them and I'm going to hurt them and harm them? Why do I do that? 
Because they have gone so out of control of themselves that they're a danger to the actual selves and those around them, and I only keep them in restraints long enough for them to reclaim self-governance, or at least a modicum of self-governance. And as soon as they've recovered enough self-governance, they're out of restraints, and then out of a room, and then out of the hospital. We restore them. The whole goal is to restore them to liberty, and that's why the fruits of the Spirit, the last fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has His way in your life, is self-control that you've restored self-mastery, self-governance, internal, and kratia, and within, krat, like autocrat, democrat, ex- exercising authority within oneself. That's what God is trying to do for us. I agree with you. I'm going to push this a little farther. Go, go for it. Is this what our nation claims to do on a worldwide wide scale, though? No, because the motivation is what's key. The motivation is the key. Can you do the same behavior... Um, putting someone in restraints for a, complete altruism, you want to help and restore them. Can you put someone in restraints because you want to harm, punish, or uh, coerce their family if you don't pay up the tribute? We're not going to set them free, like the Taliban holding someone hostage and tying them in restraints. You can restrain someone for a completely different motive. Our nation's primary motive is self-centered. It's all about promoting American agenda. No matter what they say on the media, it's our goals, our nation, and we're watching out for ourselves. It is not interested primarily in enlightening the world with a message of love. So it's motivational, not the specific behavior. Many people miss this in their relationships too. Because in relationships, a behavior can be done for a variety of reasons. A person can bring his spouse flowers because he loves her and just wants to cheer her. He can also bring flowers because he wants to manipulate her. True? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the behaviors themselves are, it's, it's really, that's why man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is why we are not to judge, because we can only see the external behavior. We really can't see the motivations of the heart. And uh, those who operate under the rules pattern, they absolutely injure everywhere they go. They're like blind, this is what Christ meant, blind leading the blind. They stumble and fall all over the place. They hurt people all over the place. Why? Because we saw the pastor walking into a bar. Yes, <laughs> because somebody called that their, their, their 22-year-old son was, and she asked them to go get him and bring him home. But that, that was around the church before the next weekend came, and everybody wants to know what the pastor's at the bar, Drinking. I mean, this is what we stumble, because we are so quick to judge the external. And this is why it says, don't judge it unless you be judged for the same measure you use against others. We measure it against you. Do you understand what that means? What does it mean? Why will we measure it against you? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings forth evil of the evil stored up in him. In other words, when you judge others, you're actually revealing the actual condition of your heart, that you're not compassionate, you're not gracious, that you're mean-spirited, you're judgmental, you're self-centered, you're arrogant, you're dictatorial. That's what you're revealing if you're being judgmental towards people. And that's why it is judged against you, because God's judgments are diagnoses. He diagnoses what your actual condition is. And so when you judge people, you're revealing your condition. And thus, in, our, in the bottom of our lesson for Tuesday, wait, was it Tuesday? Or, excuse me, yeah, Tuesday's lesson, it says, it is no arbitrary, this is out of Steps to Christ, page 18, it is no arbitrary decree on the part of God that excludes the wicked from heaven. No arbitrary decree. It doesn't, like, sit in a list of rules and then, okay, well, I've weighed the evidence and my judgment is, boom, that's not what happens. They are shut out by their own unfitness for its companionship. Their condition. Are we reconciled to God? Restored? Have the law written in the heart? Love God and others more than self? Do we still operate on fear and selfishness? The glory of God would be to them a consuming fire. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. Notice it's their actual condition that determines our eternal destiny. Thus the Revelation 14 text, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Is not the hour when he sits in judgment determining people's destiny. It's the hour in earth's history when a group of people are to stand up and say, hey, judge God correctly. Stop protecting, pr- promoting him as a dictator coming out of Rome. See him for who he is, the creator and the redeemer and the restorer revealed to us in Jesus Christ. The hour for us to make the right judgment about him has come and we are to call back to worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the designer worship. Cl- closing comment. Um, in Isaiah 26. Starting with verse 9. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Though grace is shown to the wicked, 
They do not learn righteousness. Even in the land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. Uh, and, and then it says in 12, Lord, you've established peace for us. All that we've accomplished, you've done for us. It was well said. Beautiful. They don't learn. Why? Because they have this operating system of imposed rules and they see God in a sort of light. Russell, you want to make a closing? Okay. Uh, I just looked at Thursday's lesson and, and there's the, the quote from Foster Mount Blessing about the angels being surprised that there was an actual law in heaven. So I, I think the lesson is starting, hopefully is starting to, to come to our awareness of this natural law distinction. There, you will see if you read the lessons, there's always been a tension in them yeah. between the uh, principal contributors who often see the view that we hold and the editors who take about 70% of what was contributed and eliminate it and put their stuff in, which holds a different view. And so you'll read in the very passage some beautiful things like this, then completely contradicted on the next page or the next paragraph because the, the, uh, these lessons are edited and heavily revised up to 70% of what's submitted uh, is not what, what, by the principal contributor is not what actually goes into these. And, and I know that the, the primary editors of this, this particular journal um, hold a, a very forensic and penal view and dict- an authoritarian view of God. And that's, that's why. So we'll see sometimes this tension. Yes, absolutely. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our creator, our designer, and a God of who is love. Enlighten our minds, Holy Spirit. Come in and write your law, the motives of your kingdom, into our, our being, that we can leave here living a life in harmony with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank you.